This week on Millennial. You're an adult. You've owned property before this. I was like, we'll just see what happens. Like, if anybody can make it work, it's Andrew. He'll work the corner. It'll be fine. Worst comes to worst. <laughs> yeah, he's going to Vegas. He's not above sucking some dick. It's legal in <laughs> Vegas, right? But that was a perfect show. So I think it would have went viral, whatever. Was it? <laughs> it was a perfect train wreck. And I think yes. because of the train wreck that was life at that time, people needed something they could look at and go, oh, man, like, I'm a piece of shit. But that guy is really a piece <laughs> of shit. What would we have thought of this G.I. Jane joke? Personally, I would have thought it was a little bit outdated. For people to remember fast enough to react to a joke, like it needs to be a little bit more relevant than G.I. Jane. It's like they went out of their way to attack her alopecia, come to think of it, because they decided to do an outdated joke. Welcome to Millennial, the home of fake adulting, but real talk. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. I know what's on everybody's minds, the slap that was heard around the world, and we have some news for everybody. Today's Wednesday. It happened Sunday. We're not going to talk about it. It's old news, okay? I'm just kidding. Of course, we're going to talk about it (laughs) at the end of today's show, at the end of today's show. Actually, as luck would have it, Laura on Friday was like, I want to talk about comedy. Yeah, so I was initially inspired by um, the pretty universally panned stand-up special that Jeff Foxworthy released recently, and um, sort of his gaslighting humor about millennials. And I thought we could talk about, um, you know, how does comedy survive the current culture shift that we're going through, the relativity of comedy, what makes us laugh, what comedians we appreciate in today's day and age. And we will certainly be talking about that. But we are also going to be talking about the intersection of comedy and emotional reactions, like the one we saw at the Oscars. Um, So really looking forward to that conversation. I really like stand-up comedy, but I have to confess in recent years it's been a lot harder for me to find stand-up routines that are funny to me. And I think it's because the culture is shifting. You sensed the disturbance in the force. You sensed I did. the vibe <laughs> shift that was coming. I wanted to talk today about leaving big cities and speaking of shifts, a shift toward moving out of big cities in favor of the smaller cities where in many situations, it is uh, more affordable to live. And I wanted to talk about this because actually the subject has been on my mind lately. But there was this report recently that cities lost population in 2021, leading to the slowest year of growth in U.S. history. This is new data from the Census Bureau. And like I said, I just wanted to use this as a jumping off point to discuss our own experiences with leaving cities because Laura was in New York. She left. Pam was in L.A. She left. I was in L.A. I left as well. So from this report, we learned that New York, L.A., Chicago and San Francisco, which I think safe to say those four cities are the four most expensive cities in the country. They lost a total of over 700,000 people from July 2020 to July 2021. Funnily enough, I left Chicago in July 2020, so I am part of that stat. 
And Phoenix, Houston, Dallas, Austin, and Laura's home base of Atlanta gains more than a total of 300,000 residents. Laura, Pam, why do people leave the big cities? It's not just for the quieter life. Maybe that used to be one of the biggest reasons I want a more I want a more simple life out in the country or out in the smaller cities. What reasons jump out to you most when people leave big cities? I think the number one thing that's probably most relatable to most people is cost of living, um, which is something you definitely alluded to. Uh, when I was living in New York, I was working at the Apple store, which as far as retail goes, it's a pretty good job. But $18 an hour in New York City ain't great. <laughs> and it was really hard to live on. Um, not to say that that was my only motivation. Speaking to some personal experiences, I didn't have a support system in New York. Um, my support system, you know, is here. And then, you know, also somewhat in Maryland too, right? So I didn't like have anyone that I was like particularly close with in New York that was like my ride or die. Friends or family. Yeah. Like that had an impact on my mental health that I was not anticipating. I had really seen myself living in New York for a while for quite some time. And when I got to go, when I got into grad school there, it felt like the dream. It felt like the logical next step. And when I got there, it became clear really quickly that I wasn't happy. And I actually felt kind of ashamed of myself Hmm. for it not working. And like I had gotten what I had wanted all of those years. And then I realized it didn't live up to my expectations. Now, I will say I love New York. I'm not trying to shit on New York. I love New York as a city. I love visiting there. It's a really hard place to live if you're poor. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that's my takeaway. Pam, I know you were in New York for a while, too. Yeah, I was in New York for about maybe four or five months before I moved to L.A. So basically, I went from San Francisco to New York to L.A. within the span of a year. Um, and I, I, in comparison to my time in LA, I think I, I romanticize my time in New York a bit more because I was so busy that I didn't really feel the, um, support system aspect that you were talking about. So even though I was making new friends, I think that the reality of, of not really having somebody there that you could really count on like to drop everything if you needed them had not really hit me. Um, And but then when I left for L.A., L.A., I was there for a couple of years and I also ended up leaving for mental health reasons. And I'm not living in San Francisco, the city anymore. But the unfortunate reality of the Bay Area in general is that a lot of the surrounding areas that used to be cheaper are not anymore. And this is where my support system is in terms of like family and stuff like that. So even though I'm not in LA anymore and I'm not technically living in a big city, it's still really easy to feel like I still kind of feel the crunch that you you basically brought up at the beginning of this discussion, Andrew. So it's yeah. it's kind of like an interesting dichotomy for me. 
because yeah, even though it, I'm not like in a city, it still kind of feels like like I have to like make sure I make a certain amount of money so that I can keep yeah. living here where my family still is. Right. To your point, people started leaving San Francisco and moving to the area surrounding San Francisco, the Bay Area. And because of all that movement, those prices started going up as well. Setting cost of living aside in terms of housing, just general lower cost of living is a big reason people live the big cities, just restaurants, coffee shops, the tax rates, less traffic, of course, especially in the city like Los Angeles. And then, of course, an increase in remote work. And businesses have been businesses have themselves have been moving to cheaper cities and states to save money for themselves too. just like office space, a lot cheaper to get in certain areas. And then I was also thinking like a lot of people leave the cities for more open spaces. Yeah, Los Angeles and New York and San Francisco, they have their parks and they're big and they're beautiful. But people want to get away from the concrete jungles, I think, too. And then finally, and this was a big reason for me in terms of moving to Vegas, opportunities in the surrounding area. So what I love about living in Vegas is I got Utah, I got California if I want it, I got Arizona, I got the entire West pretty easily accessible to me. And that was a really, really big draw for me. So I think all of these reasons, um, you know, everybody's got their own reasons, but I think these are some of the biggest. Did I miss any others? Do you think that kind of covers in addition to what you two brought up? No, but I, I do think that you brought up a really good point about just the the cost of living in general. So setting rent aside, um, I think that in a lot of ways for me personally, I was predisposed to anticipate that coming from living in the Bay Area and also living in San Francisco. So but but I worked with so many people when I was in New York, even which was like my first big city after my like my hometown area that were coming from Ohio <laughs> and yeah. Iowa and stuff where like, you know, we would go out for lunch and they'd be like, oh, my God, it's so expensive. And I'm thinking to myself, like $15 for lunch, that's a steal because it was comparable <laughs> right. to, you know, yeah. what, what I was already used to paying. So, yeah. You feel rich in some of these other cities that aren't the I pick, know. Yeah. pick 10. <laughs> yeah. And see, it's funny because you mentioned Atlanta. Uh, we do indeed have a lot of transient people in Atlanta. It's due to the tech boom that's happening here. It's also due to Atlanta being like the little Hollywood of the Southeast. There's a lot of you know movies that get filmed here now. Um, so I've noticed we get a lot of transplants from the West Coast. And when they first get here, they're kind of like marveling at how cheap everything is until it comes to things like rent. Rent here, not cheap. Yeah. Not at all. Um, you know, there are people here paying 1500 plus for like a studio <laughs> apartment. Mm -hmm. And that's being pretty conservative on an estimate i've seen some places that are like upward like two to two and a half grand a month just for a rental so it is getting a lot more expensive here and i think when people move here they're thinking like in west coast money terms but then they're earning money here so the money they're earning here is kind of commensurate with the cost of living here too. And they find themselves in the same problem. Yeah. So I wonder if we're going to keep see seeing this evolution play out again and again. I would also say just 
I, I don't know how it is in Atlanta, but I know in, in New York and LA and San Francisco, especially, not only is the price of rent so high, but they also get you with, you know, wanting you to make four times the amount of yep. rent and stuff like that. And and so if you're first starting on your, if you, in your career, if you're working a lower income job, it's really hard to meet that, especially if you're a single person as well. I know that there are a lot of other cities that are not like that at all. Like my brother moved to Portland a few years ago and he was saying that, you know, I think he was also working at um, the Apple store part time at the time. And even just, you know, the Apple store pays well, but he was surprised that on his part-time salary alone, he was able to afford and apply for a studio because they don't, you know, require you to make four times your rent price Yeah, to rent. And then also just like the deposit first and last month doesn't like, isn't a thing over there. In some cases they've, they've, you know, enacted some laws that make it a lot easier for people to rent that a lot of other big cities on the coast don't really give others the courtesy of so i wanted to also broaden out and look at the california exodus on a whole there's a lot that's been said about this over the past couple of years the state hasn't had net positive population growth in more than 20 years with net losses currently as high as they were in 2008 and I wanted to talk about this because I was somebody who left California in 2017. I had felt like I had hit a wall there. I didn't feel like California was giving me much anymore in terms of my professional life or my personal life to a certain extent. This was also right around the time where my sister, my younger sister, had just bought a house. And I was saying to myself, I want to be at the point where I can buy a condo or a house and I'm never going to be able to do it in California. So it's it's probably time for me to go. And it was sad, of course. And I, there's so much I do love about California and the Los Angeles area. Like, I love California to death. I consider myself a Californian to some extent, even though I don't currently live there. Um, but yeah, it's just a really big part of me and my own personal development. So I, I will always love it and cherish it. But there came a point for me where I just felt like I wasn't getting enough out of it anymore. And I feel like, and I hope a lot of people who have moved to California, so many have, especially in the entertainment industry, are going to realize that in time themselves. If you have a career out there where you are making enough money to support yourself and live comfortably, that's awesome. Good for you. Maybe you should never leave. But I think so many people go through the hell that is living in California just because it's California and because they can tag it on social media. I know there's some more nuance there, but I don't know why people put themselves through that torture of never being able to buy a house out there, the high cost of living, the traffic, etc. when there are easier lives elsewhere in America. <laughs> I will say too that if you're listening to this and you're California born and raised like I am and your family uh -huh. is out there, it's very hard. It's much harder to make that choice to leave. I totally understand yeah. that. Absolutely. But, but I do agree with you that you make a really good point where people will break their backs to to stay here and live in these big cities when it's it's not, there's nothing there that's, Why? that's adding much value to your life. Yeah. You might have friends there. I get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. Other connections to the state. Okay. But yeah, I I really encourage people to try and and look at other cities. Unfortunately, the problem is getting back to this California exodus, 
a lot of people who spent, let's say, the last 10, 15 years, similar to me, in California, are now heading back out of the state to find that cheaper cost of living, the cheaper housing. Here in Las Vegas, we're a four-hour drive from LA. I saw this stat recently reported by the uh, Nevada DMV. 40% of driver's licenses being surrendered at the Nevada DMV are from California, meaning 40% of Nevada drivers just moved over here from California. A lot of people are coming over here from California. And because of that, the housing prices are unfortunately going up. So you got to kind of look ahead of the curve and find cities or states where things are still reasonable uh, in terms of the cost of living. And it sucks. Yeah. I think it's also really hard because so much of this is determined based on where people are in their lives and kind of what they think their calling is. Andrew, I remember before you moved to California, we were still teenagers, I think. I remember you saying that you saw your future in Southern California. Just a young boy with a dream. Yep. To make it big in Hollywood. You definitely meant it. And I I still think that that was a very real thing for you. Absolutely. But just like all humans, you evolved, right? Like your needs change. And that's okay. I'm going to be a star. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And like I said, I still love California to death. I don't have any regrets about my time living there or anything like that. I just felt like I hit a wall out there in my life. And honestly, I could not buy the place I have now because prices have gone up so rapidly over the last two years. And I did take a risk two years ago. I bought early on in the pandemic in July 2020. My dad told me, do not buy. Do not buy. You're making a big mistake. I said, I don't listen to my dad, whatever. <laughs> and yeah, it was a risk, but it it has paid off for me. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I was worried about you. I Yeah, were you? I don't remember you when, telling me that. When you okay. mentioned you were buying. Well, no, I didn't say anything at the time because <laughs> what what was I going to say? Was it like you had to support me? Yeah, I wanted to yeah, support you. And yeah. you're, you're an adult. You've owned right. property before this. I was like, we'll just see what happens. Like, if anybody can make it work, it's Andrew. Um, oh. But I, I was a little worried. He'll work the corner. It'll be fine. Worst comes to worst. <laughs> yeah, he's going <laughs> well, to Vegas. It's legal. He's not in Vegas, above sucking right? some dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to hit Mark Clip on that moment. <laughs> hey, I just did too. <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw the button light up right before I clicked it. <laughs> Uh, that's actually a do not social moment because my mom will watch that clip. <laughs> yeah, whatever, okay. Who cares? Boo. No, no, it's fine. Chloe, we can include it. It's fine. It's fine. So yeah, it was it was a little risky, but it did end up paying off. I was also going through my own, you know, home disaster at the time. So my outlook on life was very pessimistic. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> I hope nothing bad happens. But yeah. it wasn't really coming from a place of thinking it wouldn't work. Yeah. Did you ever go to yeah, your yeah. dad and be like, see, dad, I told you it's fine. Yeah, I don't want to be that guy yet. I will at some point, but <laughs> I've definitely I've definitely dropped some pretty big hints. Well, look at the value of my place now, dad. <laughs> he just doesn't. He refuses to fly. He didn't like that. I was moving out here because that mm. would require him to get on a plane. But anyway, to, I mean, to your point, could you. If you wanted to, could you afford a place in New Jersey right now? Or is the housing market also yeah. really high? In- no, it's definitely, yeah, it's cheaper there. 
Okay. Sure. Okay. Especially, so I can't speak for like northern New, uh, New Jersey, uh-huh. close to New York City. That's probably a lot more money. Not but to like add South fuel Jersey, to your dad's fire, but I was kind of hoping that you could also rub that in his face if it was oh, the cost I of see. living was higher. no probably not that would have been a good idea though Uh, that's too bad laura when we were planning this discussion you had brought up a point about doctor shortages across the country yeah so when we were talking about this i was like oh this is interesting um i don't know that there's necessarily a causation argument to be made here but i think maybe there is some correlation Um, The Association of American Medical Colleges says that the United States is currently short about 20,000 physicians and that the gap is estimated to rise to between 38,000 and 125,000 by 2034. So just in the next decade or so. And just kind of thinking about it from, you know, a very logical standpoint, where are like the highest proportion of doctors to people, they're in big cities, right? That's where the population centers are. So it made me wonder if perhaps there are some physicians who, in addition to leaving larger cities, have changed careers. Um, We've heard of some examples of that happening. I don't know, again, how much overlap there is here, but it is interesting because it's a reflection of a larger trend showing that the entire country is shifting. That's an interesting observation because I've also seen something kind of similar going on here. I've seen reports that there aren't enough doctors in Vegas because Mm -hmm. the city's growing so rapidly. They just can't keep up with the, the offices and hospitals which was very concerning during COVID, running out of right, ICU yeah. beds, potentially. I don't think we to, ever got there. To but. that point, I I, I want to say that at some point I also heard firsthand or read that there were better incentives for anybody that was trying to go through nursing school or medical school in schools out in Vegas in the hopes that if they offered those incentives and then also offered better residency options and maybe like potentially a better pipeline to a job after those people that went to school there would choose to stay. So Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't be surprised if we kind of see more of that happening because I think you have to give people incentives to, to get them to go where you need them. So Yeah. Yeah. And Ariel in the Discord is bringing up an interesting point. They say we're short 20,000 doctors, but they won't create more residency training slots. So every year there are thousands more medical school graduates than there are training spots to actually get licensed. That was something that this article I was reading from Vox pointed out as well, is that there are well-qualified med school graduates who just can't get jobs, even though there are doctor shortages. Wow. Yeah, that does sound like a big problem. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Ariel. So my closing point on this is maybe if you feel like you've been living somewhere where it is hard to live because the cost of living is so high, and it doesn't have to be New York, LA, San Francisco, Chicago. It could be even, you know, Atlanta. Like Laura said, the prices are going up in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. There's some I have, good... I have friends who've moved out of Atlanta for that reason. They've moved to the really? suburbs. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Even the suburbs, there are some good small towns around the country, even LGBTQ plus friendly ones around the country. 
that maybe you wouldn't expect. I know there's there's one uh, right near my hometown in New Jersey, in suburban South Jersey. I've I've heard about this town, Collingswood, I think it is. Very gay friendly. Um, those types of places are scattered all over the country. My point just being, you don't have to live in a big city to be to feel like you're safe and 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 around like minded people. So don't be afraid to explore other smaller areas. Maybe you can get ahead of that curve that I brought up earlier. All right. Well, before we move on to our next story, we just wanted to give a quick plug for our Patreon on weeks like this where we have less or fewer ads. Um, that's really when our Patreon supporters are a lifeline. The Patreon is really the show's bread and butter. It's how we're able to make getting this show out weekly a priority for all of y'all. And there are also hundreds of hours of bonus content available behind that paywall that will be immediately available um, as soon as you sign up for um, a subscription at the $2, 5 or $10 level. We've got Palace Intrigue. We've got The Variety Show. We've got Breaking News, which I'm guessing there's going to be a new Breaking News installment in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I think we're getting a new Supreme Court Justice. (laughs) Just FYI. I'm trying not to jinx it, but I think we're good. Um, But there, we just have a ton of fun over there. Um, And we would love your support over at patreon.com slash millennial. And speaking of the Patreon, do we want to talk about or maybe tease a little bit what we're doing in After Dark today? Yeah, so I went to my first arena concert since before the pandemic uh, on Friday, and I'm going to talk about that experience, just being around so many people in an enclosed space. And uh, there is one person next to me who absolutely drove me bonkers, so I'm sure that'll cause a little (laughs) bit of discussion amongst the panel here. Pam, you're going to talk about something related to something that Laura is talking about in a little bit. I am. But, you know, sometimes what happens in After Dark has to stay in After Dark. And this is one of those moments because I'm not trying to get in trouble with, you know, nosy family members. Pam doesn't even want to tease it. She has to keep it as vague as possible. No, I don't want to give anybody (laughs) that knows me in real life an incentive to (laughs) listen to After Dark. Okay. Yeah, that'll all be available at patreon.com slash millennial. Thanks, everybody. So I wanted to talk about Netflix this week. Because I was, like many people, very sad to hear that they had canceled the Babysitter's Club after only two seasons. (laughs) And I know that doesn't really seem like it would be the target audience for um, people our age, but we are also the generation that grew up on Babysitter's Club series. They're very beloved. And I just feel like the nostalgia factor is probably a really big reason why even childless millennials thought to tune in to this show. Um, It was very crazy that it got canceled. It kind of came out of nowhere. But the showrunner for The Babysitter's Club, uh, Rachel Shuker, who had also previously worked with Netflix on Glow, which was another series that was originally renewed, and then they walked that back, uh, did an interview with Vulture. And I thought that this interview was particularly interesting and very insightful if you are one of the many people that often feels blindsided by Netflix cancellations that you would like bet money on getting a second season. I know we've all been there. I know we've all tuned into Netflix shows and then you go online and you see all these people talking about them. You think this is great. I can't wait for season two. They have to renew it. And then it just like doesn't end up happening. 
So one of the most interesting things that came out of this interview is that Rachel Shuker was very straightforward with the fact that even showrunners are not really made aware of the metrics for their shows, which I find fascinating because obviously we've talked about how Netflix is notoriously cagey with the viewer numbers, specific viewer numbers or specific metrics. But you would think that somebody on the inside would have a little bit more insight because that's how you kind of decide how to run your show, right? Were you guys surprised to learn this? Yeah, I was for sure. I she shared a lot of interesting info that I had never heard before. Do you think was she like burning a bridge with Netflix? It almost felt that way. I don't know yeah, if Netflix appreciates this yeah. candor. It it is it, it maybe I mean it's actually too bad because you know clearly she she has worked with them babysitters club aside. But I do kind of wonder if maybe we're going to start seeing less and less of these overall deals with these big creators if they're not really getting the support that they need. Um, to give another example that kind of very well aligns with Babysitter's Club, because you're talking about a show that is meant for family viewing and also geared towards a younger audience. Kenny Ortega of um, High School Musical fame, which is another franchise we all grew up with, had a show called Julie and the Phantoms, which is also on Netflix. Very similarly to the Babysitter's Club was canceled months after it aired. And you kind of saw a similar treatment of what happened with the Babysitter's Club, where the team was blindsided, no information on the metrics, like specific metrics as to why it didn't work and why they decided not to continue. And I just think that it's it's fascinating that that it's not like it's a first time showrunner that's blindsided. It's somebody that has like a track record or is well known amongst people that watch TV and follow along on this inside baseball talk. I know that one point that Andrew pulled out from this interview is that it's not just whether the show is performing in the United States is, you know, like a big deal, which also kind of might lead a lot of fans to feeling like a show is doing really well when it's really not because Netflix is not really putting a lot of value in in North American viewership anymore. Yeah. So I think the thing to keep in mind is if you and all your friends in North America are tweeting about, oh my God, how could they have canceled, let's say, Sense8 or Babysitter's Club? You have to remember, you need outrage coming from around the world. Because if it's just people in North America who are watching and who are complaining about it being canceled, that's why Netflix canceled it. They need Netflix is this global streamer. They're running out of human beings to sell their subscriptions to. They need their shows to be worldwide successes. At least in many cases, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that they're in whatever phase they see themselves in, that they're looking more international, right? I mean, this is the company that was originally a mail order DVD rental service, right? So the demographic they're trying to serve has shifted. That said, these cancellations do feel pretty brutal sometimes. <laughs> and maybe that's just me taking it personally when something I really like gets canceled. Um, but remember, Archive 81, which I recommended on this show like two weeks ago, canceled. It had a, a really loss. 
solid first season. And I was super excited to see what was going to happen next. And they canceled it. And it's like, well, at least it was based on a podcast. So I can go listen to the podcast if I want to know what happens. But not everyone gets that, you know. To this point mm-hmm. of global reach, you kind of see it the other way around, where sometimes foreign titles hit at the right time. Squid Game was huge last year for Netflix, and it broke a bunch of records. But it was also interesting to hear from Shuker that Squid Game might have actually hindered chances of some other shows that were previously doing well, because now Netflix is thinking, well, we can rake in this many viewers with a Squid Game. So now... That's the new goal for anything that we're trying to invest money in, which is, you know, it's an impossible feat because you're banking on everything to go as viral as one title that happened to grab everyone's attention at the right time. It's kind of like, you know, we talk about Tiger King a lot, too. And we wonder whether Tiger King would have done as well if it didn't get released when it did, when we were all at home and looking for something else to focus our attention on. So... But that was a perfect show. So I think it would have went viral, whatever. Was it? it <laughs> I was honestly a, don't think it was the pandemic that. It was a perfect train wreck. And I think. Yes. <laughs> because of the train wreck that was life at that time, people needed something they could look at and go, oh, man, like, I'm a piece of shit. But that guy is really a piece <laughs> of shit. Fair. And I but feel even like, like Squid Game to to a similar extent, right? There are lots of conversations happening right now about, you know, late stage capitalism <laughs> and the downsides of that. And Squid Game really, you know, a lot of people resonated with that because of that conversation, right? It's very topical. And then finally, one other point that I wanted to highlight from this interview, and I, in addition to driving home the fact that even showrunners that have deals with Netflix are kept in the dark a lot. Netflix is a constantly changing what they decide is a, you know, what did they decide constitutes as a hit or what they're looking for in terms of viewership. But currently right now, um, completion rates are still a big deal. So in the past, we heard that Netflix was counting viewers by like, even somebody that tuned in for five minutes of the first episode. And it seems like now what they're really putting a lot of stock in is is if a title gets finished and also how long it takes for a viewer to finish that title. So even though we're seeing the split up of seasons a little bit more and more now on Netflix, and we talked a little bit about how we would like to see them move towards a weekly drop format like Disney Plus and HBO Max have proven works very well. It seems like Netflix is still looking for bingeability, and they're counting that towards a um, a pro uh, column point in terms of whether or not they want to renew series, which doesn't often work, um, especially for family content, because you know most kids are not being allowed to sit in front of the television and binge eight hours of television at a time. And also with a family title like Babysitter's Club, you're looking to watch it together most of the time. And most families are also not sitting down to binge a full season of something as well. This also seems insane to me in terms of a bar to set because Netflix assumes everybody has the time to binge television shows. What they're saying is this is the future where people have no lives other than binging our content. I think that's a very bad way 
to judge what is popular and what isn't. That seems like an impossible expectation. And these poor television producers and writers who have to come up with content that's going to make people want to pause their entire weekend to watch their show, that's too much pressure. If I were a TV writer or producer, I wouldn't want to work with Netflix looking at all these bars I have to clear. Yeah, it feels like they're having a hard time letting go of a model that has historically worked for them, and they just don't want to change to adapt with the times, which is a weird statement to make because remember when binging was all the rage and Netflix was on top of the world as a streamer, but they're kind of getting left in the dust by all these other competitors And it just seems like they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot by not adapting. And it's weird because they've tried different features. Remember, you know, they have the, the shuffle feature. Why not have a show that drops episodes weekly? Just try it. Pick one of your stupid reality TV shows that you love so much Netflix and just they, drop the episodes weekly. They have well, experimented point, with this the, a little bit. The circle and yeah. Yeah. I think the circle and love is blind. Both were dropping in three episode increments a week or oh, something. Really? Okay. I think I, maybe not love is blind this, this last season too, but I'm, I'm positive that the circle was only dropping, you know, like a cluster of episodes at a time. Why is it so important that people binge exactly? It's just because then they just keep up Netflix and, It just demonstrates that people can't put Netflix down. If they're finishing the shows, shouldn't that be all that matters? Yeah, isn't that the metric? That's fair. Would would we prefer, if this is going to be Netflix MO going forward, would we prefer them to move towards uh, a a limited series model more? Because at least with a limited series, you kind of feel like, you know, even if you only get one season, it's reached its natural end. Like you brought up Tiger King as an example. Tiger King only got a season two because it was such a hit for the streamer. But like season one could have stood on its own without season two, even though exactly. it was mm-hmm. still a developing situation. Or just call every show a limited series. And then if you decide to renew it, it's a great surprise. Hey, we've renewed it for one more season. Yeah, exactly. It seems a little unrealistic maybe for them to do this. So I think everybody just needs to drop their expectations and just start assuming that anything that you watch, anything that you love might not make it another season. And the good news is we're in this golden era of television. There's still plenty of other options out there for everybody. I know people get attached to certain characters and whatnot, but that's just how it is in this streaming world. And we're probably in for many more years of volatility until mm-hmm. uh, things, these streamers finally figure out how to keep people around and figure out the like the budgets behind all this too. Right. And managing those. I also have to say, I'm still mourning the cancellation of Marianne on Netflix, um, which probably sounds super like like American hick the way I say it because it's a French show and it it sounds so much prettier <laughs> um with the correct accent but it's a it's it's a horror show and it was so good um and we were just like hooked to it and then Netflix canceled it after they picked it up and we were so disappointed because it was so unique and well done and it just feels like I would have loved more of that rather than Love is Blind season 2 for example <laughs> I think there was a better use of money there. 
Yeah, but you know what? People talk about Love is Blind season two. I had never heard of Marianne until a minute ago when you <laughs> said that title. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was number. It was actually trending on Netflix. It was the number one show um, hmm. the week that it debuted. A lot of people were watching it, which may be a testament more to the international audience that Netflix is trying to cater to. Um, but I guess it okay. just it, it didn't do as well as like a squid game. Right. For example, Laura, did you send out some tweets like hashtag Netflix renew Marianne? Because that's what you got to do to save these shows. It's all about the hashtags. I have you noticed that I my Twitter presence is like kind of dead these days. I really struggle to want to tweet. (laughs) It takes a lot. What would Marianne want? Marianne wants you to save the show. Yeah. Got to do it. I mean, I think the time has passed. Well, keep it in mind for next time. You wanted to talk about passwords, right? So speaking of Netflix being desperate and being kind of chaotic and how they're managing things, we found out the other day that Netflix is finally going to crack down on password sharing. There is a test happening now in Chile, Costa Rica, and Peru. And users in these countries are being charged an additional $2.99 per month for each additional user who's connecting to this Netflix account outside of the physical household that the account seems to be hosted in. So there's a lot of questions around this right now. This is only a test. Things could change. The price could change. Um, But what would this mean for situations like divorced parents still sharing it with their kids? Maybe they're in separate homes. The kids are in separate homes. What about if a kid goes off to college and he wants to watch the family Netflix account from his dorm? So there's going to be a lot of questions like that. Maybe Netflix will have some allowances, like you're allowed to watch in only three households or maybe just two. We'll have to see what happens here. But Netflix, like I said earlier, they've run out of people to sell Netflix to. So now they have, in order to please their investors, because it's always it's always about making more money than you did in the last quarter, they, they're raising the prices, which we spoke about, spoke about a few weeks ago. And now they're cracking down on password sharing so more people create Netflix accounts. I feel like they should have done this crackdown on password sharing first instead of raising the prices, which would be inevitable. But do the password crackdown first. Get more people to sign up for Netflix. On the other hand, this could backfire. People could say, wait, I got to buy my own Netflix now for $20 a month? F that. I'm out. I'm going to Disney Plus or HBO Max or CNN Plus, which currently has a deal for $2.99 a month you can get locked into. Oh, sounds like someone uh, got on the CNN Plus train. (laughs) I signed up just because for the next month, if you sign up, uh, you get locked in, like I said, $2.99 a month for the lifetime of your subscription, which I thought was a good deal. I'm probably going to cancel it. I looked at CNN Plus. I don't like it. You can't even watch live CNN on CNN Plus. You still need a separate cable subscription. Yeah. Oh, good grief. How does that even work? This is how messed up the TV industry is because the cable companies aren't allowing CNN to stream CNN on CNN Plus. They had to create all new content on CNN Plus. So this really shouldn't be called CNN Plus. It should be called like CNN adjacent, like Anderson Cooper's there. (laughs) CNN minus. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) CNN and Anderson's doing a parenting show. Whoop de doo. Uh, this isn't going to last long for me. But yeah, so what do you two make of this? Any thoughts on the password crackdown that will be rolling out inevitably around the world? I, I find it curious, sort of looking at the markets where they chose to test it first. 
because I'm not really sure what Netflix subscriptions cost in these places. But generally speaking, in Latin America, um, technology services actually tend to be more expensive relative to the cost of living of the area. So this feels icky. As for the additional $2.99 per month, I guess if you're mathing it out and mm. you're actually getting your you, your lychee friends who are using your passwords to pay you $2.99 a month for it, I guess it's cheaper in the long run than everyone paying $20 for their own account. If places are increasing their prices or changing their prices, I'm thinking about what have they done to improve their service offerings? And in the case of Netflix, it's nothing. And in this case, it feels like something is being taken away, particularly because in the past, Netflix didn't give a shit if you shared your password. But it's so we can invest in our content, Laura. We're creating new content. That's what we're giving you. That we're canceling. <laughs> Love is blind. Love is blind. Laura's like, can I can I put my extra two ninety nine a month towards bringing Marianne back? Yes, please. <laughs> Better content. I feel that. Um, <laughs> to your point about the regions, I I also kind of wonder going back to how we were discussing earlier that they are looking for growth in new markets. I'm wondering if these are just new markets they're hoping to grow subscriptions in. And so the the goal would be to um, price people out, basically, of um, of keeping more people on one password. But that still feels gross, like you were saying, because the reason people are doing this is because $20 a month is really expensive. Yeah. So we'll let everybody know when eventually this comes to the U.S. or other countries around the world. In light of the fact that, you know, the show's called Millennial, we're millennials, um, I thought that we could talk about uh, Jeff Foxworthy's new special, which I think should be called OK Boomer. That's not what it's called, um, but it's what it should be called. And there's one uh, joke of his that has gone viral on the internet, not for great reasons. And it has certainly ruffled some feathers. Andrew, do you think you can play this? But I had a great childhood. You know, I got I played every sport. For the recreation center, my parents didn't make me pick one sport because they thought I was going to play professional whatever. I played every sport. And it was weird back then because if you wanted a trophy, you had to finish in first place. (laughs) It was nuts. So, you know, based on the dead silence that you're hearing from this panel (laughs) in response to that, you can pick up on what a lot of other Uh, folks in our age group and younger age groups, even some Gen Xers are thinking. Um, And I was actually talking to a friend of mine um, who showed me a meme um, of the clip initially. And I responded to him and was like, yeah, as though millennials are the ones who came up with the concept of participation trophies to begin with. And he was like, holy shit, You're right. I never thought of it that way. I've just been gaslit my entire life into thinking that those are our fault. They're not our Mm -hmm. fault. They're our parents' fault. (laughs) Blame the boomers. Um, But I thought it would be interesting for us to talk about any other common millennial tropes um, that weren't started by us, but 
by our elders that kind of get held against us in comedy settings, even if the stakes are not super high. Like, I'm not personally offended by Jeff Foxworthy. I think that, you know, my grandparents would probably find that very funny, (laughs) you know, and that's fine. Yeah. And I feel like Jeff Foxworthy, that's his audience. Adults, parents, you know, people in their even 60s or 70s, just looking at him, he's at least in his 50s. So he's just catering that audience. He's not catering to millennials. But in terms of other millennial tropes, I think the biggest one is millennials are broke because we have bad spending habits and the avocado toast and the expensive lattes always get brought up. Millennials are entitled. I rarely see that. I don't see it amongst millennials any more than I do any other generation. It's not a millennial specific problem. And then, of course, cancel culture, like we're trying to cancel things. Um, But yeah, I think I think those are the big ones we get thrown under the bus for. Yeah. And I think um, we definitely get made fun of for pet parenting. (laughs) And maybe that one is on us maybe we are the ones perfect yeah i know we came we came up with pet parenting of course to be honest in the grand scheme of things that's not hurting anyone it's just bringing joy to people's lives so um get over it but i thought it would be a really good opportunity to observe that comedy is relative right we all watched that clip from jeff foxworthy and we were the equivalent of the melting, um, the new melting emoji face, right? (laughs) Just like, kill me. This is terrible. But there were plenty of people in the audience who clearly got a kick out of it. And I can think of, you know, a certain audience of people who would be into that kind of thing. Um, So speaking of comedy being relative, I think we can talk about Chris Rock and Will Smith (laughs) (laughs) and reactions to that. Um, yeah so do we have should we show video of this has ever i mean everyone's seen it at this point but it is so like so iconic (laughs) iconic i call it hard to watch like at this point having seen it so i was watching live pam you were watching live too i doubt laura you were right i was not you were not watching laura i actually found out about this because of pam like the morning after the Oscars, I got on Twitter <laughs> and Pam had tweeted about it. And then I saw it and I was like, holy shit. Lucky well, you we not being all... on Twitter at all. Yeah. I think so that's maybe. how we were all feeling. I-, I know that like a lot of people, I was confused at first as to whether or not it was a, it was a bit. But then when the silence, because they-, they cut the audio in America for a while, that's kind of when you yeah. realize that it was like, oh, oh shit, like this was not planned this is not a joke yeah the whole like, ceremony in... was unhinged so i don't think that Ugh. i think that that was probably why a lot of people thought that it was part of this new revamped oscars situation because there were a yeah. lot of awkward moments um throughout the ceremony but yeah this one was definitely unplanned will smith does laugh initially at the joke this is he what did. i realized finally uh watching this video but over his shoulder his wife is not and Jada Pinkett Smith. She's not laughing. And I assume in the couple of seconds right there, maybe Will, the camera cuts away. Maybe Will looks at Jada, realizes she's pissed, and that's when Will gets pissed. So my TLDR on, on this whole situation is they were both in the wrong. Chris Rock probably went too far with the joke. 
Will Smith went too far with getting up on stage and punching or slapping him. It looks like a punch to me initially. That was too far to physically attack Chris Rock. I think if anything, Will Smith should have maybe threw up a couple middle fingers or just yelled, don't talk about my wife like that. Keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth. Like that, I think that those two things would be completely fine. It's it's the slap that is the big problem here. Yeah. From Will's side. It's the bridging into physical violence. Um, But I thought it was a really interesting example. And it's kind of fortuitous that this happened ahead of this conversation, like you alluded to, Andrew, um, because I think it really does capture the moment that we're at culturally. uh, Because when I think about that joke, he made a G.I. Jane joke, right? I think in the 90s, nobody would have batted an eye at a joke like that. I'm not saying that Jada wouldn't have felt some kind of way because it's a medical condition, right? That's what um, results in her needing to shave her head. But I don't know that like the rest of the world would have been taking sides in this situation because now the age of social media. Yeah, I mean there's there's a lot more awareness around the impacts that personal attacks or statements have on people. And I don't mm. think that was something that we had say in the 90s, even the early 2000s. I think that there is a much higher social awareness that we're working through right now. We haven't gotten there yet, clearly. Um so I just remember seeing this and thinking, wow, really? A G.I. Jane joke? Like, that's where you're going with it? And right. then Will's reaction just really felt like an overreaction to me. I actually told Mark this last night. I think a way better response to this would have been to go on social media after the fact, post, you know, a, a meaty paragraph explaining the condition And then saying the only thing less funny than poking fun at someone's medical condition is Chris Rock's stand up. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been way better. (laughs) Yeah, kind of attack Chris Rock back. I was thinking that too, Laura, like thinking of alternate options for Will in this moment. Clearly, he got really worked up, as he said in his statement. But if he had just released a statement, if he didn't react in that moment, if he just released a statement, it would have gotten way less attention than what actually transpired. Yeah. The the Oscars tried so hard this year to get people to tune in. Turns out they didn't have to do anything at all. It just (laughs) happened organically, unfortunately. That's that's the funniest thing, funniest part of this whole situation. So I I get what you're saying with the statement, but it would have gotten way less attention. Scrolling through Facebook Monday morning, all you saw was that slap picture a million times over. I was so sick of it. By Sunday night, I was sick of it. Yeah, it was all you saw on TikTok. (laughs) Like when I started scrolling on Monday morning, everything on my For You page was some kind of reaction video or parody video of it or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, in a weird kind of fucked up way, it, it was iconic. I can't say it was iconic for positive reasons. Um, but just kind of stepping back a little bit and thinking about it from a comedy perspective, if we didn't have the added context about, um, Jada's health, 
what would we have thought of this G.I. Jane joke? Well, personally, I, I would have thought it was a little bit outdated because but but, you know, maybe appropriate for the audience. And I'm speaking as somebody that has uh, like probably a bit of a broader knowledge of pop culture than the average person for people to remember fast enough to react to a joke. Like it needs to be a little bit more relevant than G.I. Jane, which, which came out in like the 90s or in the 80s right. or something. It's not even like it's relevant in pop culture conversation today. So I guess it was like lazy at best and, and outdated at, at worst. Like putting aside the 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 context of the fact that we we if we were not aware before we now know that Jada Pinkett Smith has a health condition that you know contributes to her hair loss. So, right, yeah. GI Joe, GI Jane. That's not that is an outdated reference. And I thought the Oscars were going for a younger audience. That's why they did these stupid Twitter polls and had BTS there and had Chris Evans there <laughs> promoting Buzz Lightyear, like. And then and I saw a report that Chris Rock didn't even write that joke. Of course, it's his decision to actually say it. But if the writers of the Oscars are making a G.I. Jane joke, it's like they went out of their way to attack her hair loss, to attack her alopecia, come to think of it, because they decided to do an outdated joke. Yeah, it almost made me wonder, um, because there have been some throwbacks to when he hosted in 2016, and he also poked fun at her um, during his hosting. And it made me wonder if that was an intentional choice to say, let's bring back the Chris Rock and Jada feud, um, if one ever existed. And I guess that that wasn't the only time that he's ever kind of made her the subject of a joke. And maybe that's why Will reacted this way as well. Right. Yeah. Not that it excuses it or makes it okay, but it gives you the added context to understand why it happened. Personally, when I saw that, my first thought was people have really, like, <laughs> the last couple of years have really eroded our coping mechanisms. Because just thinking in general, I feel like I see people doing crazy shit like this all the time. Um, people's emotional reactions to things these days can sometimes feel really unhinged like this. So it made me wonder if this is like a greater social problem. Um, But kind of on that note, there were several celebrities who weighed in on the dangers that they see this incident promoting towards comedians. Um, Jim Carrey was someone who spoke out. He was disgusted with the fact that uh, Will Smith got a standing ovation during his uh, Best Actor acceptance speech. Um, (laughs) Judd Apatow spoke out. Um, saying that Will Smith could have killed a Chris Rock. And that felt maybe a bit dramatic to me. But when you think about maybe smaller comedians working in smaller venues, there isn't as much publicity, there's not security. It could raise the concern for them that if you say the wrong thing in front of the wrong person, it could be dangerous for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I also think about Bob Saget. He bumped his head on his headboard in a hotel two, three months ago at this point and died of internal bleeding. So I was kind of thinking that when people are like, you know, slapping somebody in the head actually might be more dangerous than you think. Than you think. But I do. And Judd Apatow did delete that tweet. 
so I don't know if he was getting too much backlash for yeah, that. It did seem did. it did seem particularly dramatic in hindsight. But I think probably the larger issue that's being surfaced from this is the i like ideas behind free speech, of course, but then yes. behind comedians being able to practice their craft um, without fear of physical retaliation. To your point, Andrew, I think it's perfectly fine. If somebody says something that offends you, yell at them, flip them off, you know, shout them out on Twitter, like do whatever, but you don't need to physically hurt the person. That's not necessary. Um, Yeah. And I think the whole world kind of got (laughs) a taste of what something like that could look like from two very high profile people, one of whom is a comedian. But I'm wondering... What does comedy need to do to survive these days? I feel like the landscape and the way that comedy is considered nowadays has really shifted. I mean, think about when we talked about Dave Chappelle's most recent special and the number of problematic things that he said and put out into the ether about trans people. Um, Dave Chappelle formerly was, you know, for a lot of people, a very beloved comedian and not to say that his career has failed because he still seems to be doing really well but there is a degree to which it feels like he's out of touch on certain issues that he still wants to talk about and it seems like there are other comedians who maybe do a better job of staying in their lane um so i'm wondering How do we find a happy place where we can laugh and maybe even laugh at each other good naturedly without doing the kind of harm that we're seeing called out in major comedy sets these days? I think this is kind of an impossible question almost to answer because you're comedy is kind of meant to push the envelope anyway. And so I don't think there's ever going to be an instance where you're not offending at least one person commentary and satire is protected by the First Amendment. But in some cases, inciting language is not protected by the First Amendment, which is why we have stuff like the insurrection and Trump being in trouble for potentially inciting violence, the the violent um, actions of the individuals that decided to storm the Capitol. So it gets very tricky. And I think it's a fine line. But I think that People that are interacting in good faith are going to have a good barometer for when something was said in poor taste uh, with malicious intent and when something was meant to be a joke. Uh, And it's very hard to differentiate between those things because I think anytime somebody gets called into question, the, the default defensive reaction is to just say it was a joke. Like you just don't you can't take a joke. I don't know. I don't really know what the the right answer is here, but but I do think there's something to be said in terms of like interacting in good faith, thinking the best of people and and really kind of using um as a whole our critical thinking skills to deduce whether something was said with malicious intent and when something was said without. Yeah. That's a really important distinction. Mhm. And it's also about watching people over time too, right? Like Yes. You can take um you know, not to harp on too much about this example, and she's 
certainly not a comedian, but you can think about J.K. Rowling, right? And when it first started coming to light for a lot of people that she believes in and shares a lot of anti-trans rhetoric, in the early days of those conversations, there was a lot of not really knowing where she stood on it because we didn't have like the plethora of other statements that she has since made, right? So I think at the end of the day, people will show you who they are. You just have to pay attention and try not to get swept up in sort of like um, clickbait culture where you read a headline about somebody saying something offensive on Twitter, um, but then don't have the opportunity to dig any deeper into it or wait to see if it's a trend, right? Um, Because that says a lot more about a person, I think, than maybe um, their worst moments or maybe a joke that didn't land, right? Yeah. Um, I thought that we could maybe um, highlight some comedians that genuinely make us laugh in today's day and age while also being able to be in touch with the times. I think that... Maybe the sticking point for certain comedians that have been um, that have had longer term careers is that they're maybe a little bit out of touch with where the culture is now. And someone that Pam actually brought up when we were talking about this was Ali Wong. Love her. Um, Both of her specials that I've seen have been phenomenal. And the funny thing about that is she does make some pretty edgy jokes with relation to gender and race. But in those instances, she stays in her fucking lane. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I feel like that's the operative thing here, right? I'm seeing like these people we have listed here. They're all in their 30s, too. And that yeah. could be a very important part of this. I think it's kind of hard to say if Chris Rock really crossed the line or not it definitely did push the envelope mm-hmm. but i don't know if it was the worst thing he could have said no it wasn't here's the other thing too by the way just real quick when you're at an award event and a comedian comes up on stage the comedian is going to be roasting the people in the audience especially if they're in that front area that was a roast that was going on you have to give him a little more leeway because of that as well. That's just what happens at these award shows. People get roasted and sometimes their appearance does get attacked. And And I don't even think Chris Rock has apologized yet, right? And I'm not saying he shouldn't, but it is interesting to me that he's been silent so far. It's Tuesday night right now. I assume he's going to say something at some point. But yeah, he hasn't made a statement yet, whereas Will Smith has. So yeah, to the, to your point about being involved in the experience, I don't know if you all have uh, gone to a lot of like uh, stand up comedy or even like like more like amateur stand up comedy events. But my friends and I used to do this um, every once in a while in New York, and I always thought it was really interesting that before you even went in, they would kind of just tell you like, by the way, this comedian is probably gonna like do some jokes about the crowd. So if you're not, if you're easily offended, you should maybe like not be here. 
And we're sitting so, in the back in the dark. Well, yeah, but like a lot of these things are like tiny little, you know, hole in the wall, right. microscopic mm. venues. So it's like you are, you kind of like know entering the space that you are fair game. Um, mm-hmm. But some people are just like, you know, not okay with that or they get their feelings hurt very easily. So it's maybe not a good place for them. And does that excuse like lazy jokes that poke fun at, you know, aspects about yourself that you can't change? No, but I did appreciate the heads up because, you know, some people don't realize that they're, they're kind of part of the act when they agree to do this stuff. And we kind of see this too. And on a larger scale, sometimes with these like comedy specials, sometimes if you are in the front row as well, you'll get singled out for one reason or another too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, you know, not, not to get too much into, you know, her business, although it's been pretty widely publicized at this point. If he wanted to make a joke about Jada, there's just ripe material <laughs> out there for him to go off of that has nothing to do with her physical appearance. So to me, the joke was lazy at best. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't have any of the other context about her medical condition, um, I would just think it was a joke that was in poor taste and kind of lazy, and I would move on with my day. Um, So I think that might be really the sticking point when it comes to how people, particularly people in our age group, are consuming comedy now, is it seems maybe as an age group, we're not as easily amused by jokes about people's physical characteristics or things they can't change about themselves. Yeah. And by the way, like calling her G.I. Jane, that on its face, that's not necessarily an insult. She looks like a soldier. She looks like, you know, a fighter. That's not that can be taken as a compliment. It's just when you mm-hmm. when you add the context in that she has alopecia, that everything changes. And it's probably unlikely, but maybe this was an honest mistake. Maybe whoever did write this joke didn't know that she has alopecia and it worked its way through the writer's room without anybody catching that issue. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. And a bunch of Chris like Rock. 50-something white dudes were like, oh, that's so funny, man. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> I mean, we see a lot of things slip through the cracks in all forms of media that were like, how did nobody catch us sooner? Take, you know, we've talking about spoken about the Jeopardy drama, stuff like that. It's mm-hmm. like, we're always surprised to see how poorly things are vetted. Yeah. And maybe that's what happened here. Chris Rock did say in that moment, that joke wasn't that bad. You kind of assume he's he doesn't know about the medical condition. Right. Yeah. And also something to be said there for just evolving your act over time. Um, Mm -hmm. Laura, to get back to your point, I I love that you listed Bo Burnham um, in your comics as well, because that's a really good example of somebody that has been doing this for way longer than he probably should have because he is so young. But imagine if Bo Burnham was still telling the same jokes he was telling at 18, at 30, you know, like it wouldn't land because we've all evolved past that point, his audience has, and it would feel lazy. So I think that like, you know, reinvention and understanding um, like how to evolve your act to stay current um, and to keep up with the times is also probably very necessary to you in terms of making sure your career has longevity. Yeah. 
and I think too, you know, thinking about Bo Burnham, Ellie Wong, Hassan Minaj, we have mentioned here too, all of them really look inward for their comedy and they're not projecting onto other people. And maybe that's a key difference too. Um, even like Bo Burnham's song Problematic from the Inside album, it's all about all the problematic shit he used to do <laughs> um, before he became more enlightened. And it's really funny, but there's also an element of truth to it, too, right? Because we've all been there. We all have problematic things we used to do. Um, and sometimes in the era of social media, it can feel like you endlessly get raked over the coals for things like that, no matter how many times you apologize for it. Um, so I think that there is social commentary that can be made through introspection. And maybe that's what we're looking for. I don't know. Write in. Let us know. <laughs> yeah. There's no right or wrong answer. I mean, again, it's all subjective, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I guess we'll see what Chris Rock says, if anything. Will Smith already said his side. So so now it's time for recommendations before we wrap up the show. I want to recommend this because I just renewed my own TSA pre-check. I got TSA pre-check a few years ago. Basically, this lets you skip the old school security lines at U.S. airports. It's $70 for four years, I believe, four or five years. If you fly with any regularity in this country, it is definitely worth getting pre-check. You don't have to take your shoes off. You uh, can keep your light jacket on. The line is always shorter on TSA PreCheck's website. It says uh, in February 2022, 94% of PreCheck passengers waited less than five minutes in the security line. And we all know how bad security lines can get. Um, and here's another benefit. Many credit cards actually cover that $70 PreCheck fee. So check your credit card. Maybe uh, they will cover the fee. Mine does. That's why I initially signed up for PreCheck. Very much worth it if you're a flyer in this country. Um, I want to recommend a game that just came out on the 25th. It's Ghostwire Tokyo. Um, it's an action adventure game. Uh, it's first person. And um, in the game, you can use various psychic and paranormal abilities to defeat ghosts and spirits that are haunting Tokyo. Um, this is a PS5 exclusive as well as, yeah, Windows. Um, it's also, uh, it's also a PS5 and, and Microsoft exclusive. It's really, really good. Basically played it all weekends. Uh, we're probably going to wrap it up here in the next couple of days or so. But if you're into paranormal spooky stuff like I am, and you have a PS5, <laughs> um, it's a good play for sure. And I wanted to recommend the Supergroup Mineral Matte Screen Sunscreen. This says SPF 40. And uh, it's probably better if you have uh, combination oily skin like I do. But this stuff is really great. It kind of um, smooths out your complexion. So if you have textured skin like I do, this is going to be your new best friend. And I found that it also minimizes... Um, uh, redness on your skin, which I also have issues with, uh, often, especially when it gets warmer. Uh, although you should be wearing sunscreen year round, I will just wear this and that's it, uh, because it does a, a pretty good job of just evening everything out without actually having to put any other makeup on. So if you're looking for some new sunscreen, I would recommend checking this out and seeing if it'll work for you. I think I need to try this myself. It's really, really nice. 
Well, if you have any feedback about today's episode, you can contact us by writing directly to millennialshow at gmail.com or by using the contact form or anonymous confessional on millennialshow.com. You can also follow us on social media. We are Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can follow our new TikTok, which is Millennial Pod. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Bye. Bye.